You're listening to Dead Air Podcast, part of splatterpictures.net. What's up, everybody? Wes. Dead Air Nipe here with Always. Typical Lydia. Today's show, we're going to be doing the 2003 Korean horror classic. A tale of two sisters. Whoop, 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 whoop. That is a sack of meat getting beat. Or is it a doll? That is the scene that stuck with me since I've seen this years ago. And that it's, I guess it's the scene, similar scene like that, that sticks out in my head in audition is a sack. You know, it's the, the idea of the sack that stuck with me. If someone were to ask me without my rewatching this 10 years after I'd watched a tale of two sisters, what is this movie about? Aside from the typical, it's a tale of two sisters. It is about the sack in the hallway, man, a sack being dragged down a hallway it is terrifying and it has the same sort of connotation to me as the body bag being dragged through the school hallways in nightmare and elm street another thing that really sticks with me so i'm glad that you chose that as your intro sound effect wes i was convinced as i often am as just before i go into the west keeper mode that i don't have a sound effect for this one i don't know what i'm gonna say but then it happens and i know exactly what's going to i don't hesitate for a second it's a, it's a it's an unusual power that i can only do in the moment on instinct my body will generate it funnily enough the scene that has always stuck with me in the sense that if i was to use another uh asian horror reference if we were to go to uh cairo or uh, pulse that slow-mo running and then the slow peak underneath that ledge which has always been quite creepy to me it's the ghost coming out from under that bed uh, in this film I find that so awful <laughs> so so awful so effective um, unusual because of so much of this film is so brightly lit and taking place during the day and you know these days people are always talking about uh horror in the daytime can you even imagine midsummer's a masterpiece uh but lots of films did it first and better a24 and this is one of them this is and this is a, probably one of those things that really fed that trend that we've seen in elevated horror or whatever you want to call it, uh, horror in the daylight as well, where <laughs> they've got that sort of ambiguous feeling throughout. And the color palette even reminds me a lot of these more modern films and the, the pacing where we had described this as a slow 
burn. And we've been yeah. talking about sleepy Asian horror we didn't want to really do because we didn't want to put everyone to sleep. We didn't want to put ourselves to sleep. This is the sort of films that we seem to enjoy on rainy Sunday afternoons alone and not really talk about much because they're so sleepy. Even talking about them might bore the listener to death. So... <laughs> It's weird because we talked about Whispering Corridor like that and throughout our Whispering Corridors conversation we talked about how we were wrong and the pace was quite frantic really and then this one yes. it's not as sleepy as I recalled it's to describe it as sleepy Asian horror cinema is putting up up against slashers or something like that I'm not really sure if it's Sushi Typhoon that is tainting me to expect some sort of like bizarro, frantic action from an Asian horror film where this becomes a sleepy film. Did you find it unbelievably tiring and sleepy and slow paced as we had recalled? Or did you find like me, like it's not that slow at all? I agree. It's not that slow. I will say it's long. But it's not yeah. it's not like so monstrously long that you're looking at your watch like, oh, my God, get me out of here. It's not like Scorsese long. People who made this film have, have a sense of uh, the human finite minutes that we all have that don't necessarily need to be used watching a bunch of white guys in suits talk to each other. But, you know, uh, sorry, Scorsese. The um, I sure he's listening to. You know, we are in a, a position where, or I was in a position where I was like, okay, you know what? Whispering Corridors, I, that was a mistake. That was not the sleepy one. A Tale of Two Sisters, this is going to be, this is the sleepy one. And maybe in comparison, it is a little bit slower than Whispering Corridors, but not by, mm -hmm. so, there's so many, I mean, there's so much intense scenes in this film that are evenly paced throughout the entire narrative. And even when something not scary is happening, I mean, that dinner sequence, my God, like, like there's so much energy and tension in all of these scenes and what is going on in this house and the sense of unease, like anyone at any minute is going to erupt, but so much of it is this tension through comments and side glances and aggressive like motion with no words and all of this culminates together in just to like a very electric film that you can't turn away from that demands your full attention yeah absolutely i mean we had talked for a second before recording how this was similar to the goodnight mommy film um, and similar in tone, too, I find, and pace. So, mm -hmm. yeah, it's not like a sleepy, dragged out, too long, should have had 30 minutes cut from the middle or whatever sort of film. Mm -hmm. Everything is really deliberate. And that is part of the story building is those sidelong glances. And like you said, that dinner scene, uh, I found it unbelievably tense. And there's a lot of scenes around the wardrobe in the bedroom where nothing really happens necessarily but it's setting you up for the the grand finale as it were or the double because there's kind of a double finale with this yes. film and it it is so important as far as the story and it's interesting because everything is so beautiful and it's not beautiful in the 
lush kind of bamboo filled forests that we get from some action films. It's just beautiful in its ornate, very large mansion. It's basically a mansion as uh, Korea goes. So yeah, it definitely keeps your attention. And the cuteness of the little girls that play in it. Really good actresses all around, I found. And you can say the same again with Goodnight Mommy. Really good acting. And the kids themselves are compelling to watch because they've got their facial features down pat. And I don't know what sort of repetitive direction or if they're just naturally really great actors and actresses that really understood these quite complex scripts or what. But yeah, they nailed it. I, I really agree. And I think that there is a reason why this film comes up again and again in fact uh i believe um not too recently within the last couple of weeks less than three weeks ago i'd say rue morgue had a massive article that they released uh about the historical cultural significance of a tale of two sisters uh it's a it's a really worthy read um just a very lengthy uh a chunky uh article in a good way lots to sort of sink your teeth into because uh, they go into everything about like uh, the opulence of the mansion to the story itself, like everything from the colors used and, and, and things like that. Very, very interesting stuff. Fuck all that, though. What is this movie even about anyways, Lydia? I want to know once and for all. It is about how just because you're an unreliable narrator doesn't mean you can have a good time. Or can't have a good time. <laughs> yeah. It is one of those stories where it's not a spoiler to say that they're an unreliable narrator because you wouldn't know exactly who I'm talking about. It is told mostly from one point of view, but it could be any one of these people because by the time you're about a third into this movie, whether it's spoken or not which it's mostly unspoken there's something wrong deeply deeply wrong in this family in this household is it the house that is having these people behave this way you're not really sure is it the the mom or the stepmom type figure that is doing something to manipulate this family is it the father's standoffishness that is ruining everyone's lives you see all these things going on and this young girl that seems to be in the middle like wait a second is it her fault like you don't really know what is wrong here you can't put your finger on what's wrong but there's something deeply wrong and i think that's part of the beauty of the first like third of this film is that Everyone is on eggshells all of the time and you can feel it as a viewer. You don't know why and you almost don't need to. Very well put. I I think that this framing device is really effective into knocking you into this sense of tragedy. Sometimes I don't really like it. Sometimes when I'm watching a film, reading a story or anything where you have this moment where a character sits down in front of a doctor or a psychiatrist, uh, whoever, and they're like, okay, start from the beginning. What exactly happened? Like, and I'm just like, oh, like, it's a lot of wasted time. You don't need to have, like, you know, I, I'm very, I'm a comic book writer. You start the story when someone trips over the rock, not when they get up in the morning. 
So I, but in this case, I think if you didn't have that, the sense of dread would, it would almost be like you're watching just a drama. Like there, like you need that extra oomph of the, the hospital and the psych ward and the, the girl whose face is obscured with the hair down her face. So we don't know precisely who we're looking at. You need that to, to really go into this knowing that something majorly fucked up has occurred. And now these two little girls in this picturesque, almost studio Ghibli sort of entrance into the story. They got their little hats and their jackets and the tall grass. And it, it's, it just looks so pleasant. And uh, this sort of twee Korean countryside that you don't really know what you're in for. And so to know where this film goes or to suspect where this film will go with that framing device is incredibly effective to me anyways. This is the time in which it absolutely worked. This um, idea of this almost Studio Ghibli kind of intro to these girls is the most beautiful portion. And I think it's mirrored. And I get I shouldn't just keep going to Goodnight Mommy, but there's scenes of the brothers running through a field that are very similar. And it evokes this sort of freedom. You don't want the parents to ruin their moment. You just want everyone to stand back and let them be kids. And you get this real sense because of the way this movie begins that this is the last time that they really have this sort of freedom of being able to be free in nature and enjoying themselves, the looks, the family even at a distance and all of these things. It is based on a story, Rose Flower, Red Lotus, and it's an old story that's being adapted to film a lot of times according to Wikipedia. And it is a Joseon Dynasty era folktale called Zhanghua Hongyeonjian. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that even closely, but there's been a lot of stories in Atsuichi, a Japanese crime fiction horror writer that I enjoy quite a lot, has written a couple stories really similar to this, where something happens to one sister or brother, usually sisters, and their names are usually evocative of these two flowers, whether the story is different, whether it is sinister in nature, whoever's fault it is at the end of the story, whatever fault there is, um, it, that always changes, it seems. But those two names seem to persist or iterations of those two names in different languages, of course, having to do with one flower and another flower of one color and the other. And I, I love that sort of symbolism, even though, again, much like we talked about in the previous film, but not to the same degree, a lot of this stuff may be lost in translation for us. In this, thankfully, we're less reliant on seeing uh, Korean written language, so we don't have to rely on that so much. We don't have to rely on other people having a lot of subtext because there isn't as much dialogue, so we're not losing out on a lot of Korean subtext that we don't understand here in the West. There's a lot less of that, but the beauty of their names, I think, is the one thing that we kind of don't get unless we know the folk tales. After we're done with the intro to these young ladies, 
They're laying on the dock. It's very picturesque. The red, uh, the red is just so vibrant. We are introduced to probably what we are going to believe is our source of tension throughout this film. Their stepmother. And we've seen a story like this a thousand times. You come home and your stepmother or stepfather or step-sibling, in certain cases of films, is some kind of sanctimonious scold or whatever, just harsh. And she's immediately on these girls because they didn't come right to the house. And she's angry because I believe she prepared them dinner and stuff like that or, or something to eat. And, you know, it took them a long time. And Sumi has this, like, sometimes in films like this, when you are coming into a toxic family dynamic, I personally can get quite uncomfortable. I get really uncomfortable and shit like that. For some reason, I'm like, I don't. I don't want to see like parents abusing their kids or I don't want to see like, you know, that like for some reason that really gets to me. So you think like, am I going to be really watching a movie where these two precious teenage girls are going to be like humiliated and spoken down to and, and pushed around and, and who knows like what vile torture that this person is going to inflict on them while their dish rag father does nothing. But Sumi really is aggressive, like really, really pushes back. And it's, it would be so easy, perhaps very Western to, to make this a violent thing where it's more of just like, an understood disdain for each other and and Sumi pushing back on literally every aspect. So as harsh, it's like everyone's harsh. Like, and you think that these two women are going to start punching each other at any minute. But that's, of course, not what it's going to be. And every time tensions build to that boil, the kettle whistle never goes off. It never boils over. It always the scene tempers back down and you're like, whoa, that was close. And this opening sequence, this conversation with these women is just that. Underneath all of that, there's that also sort of weird thread where you're thinking, has Sumi done something to the mother that has her behaved like this? Are we to be as afraid of her as we are? Yanju, like who is the real villainous here? And because we don't have that background, it's great. And like you said, in comic book writing, any action writing or any compelling writing, you start off in some sort of scene of action or some sort of decision being made or something. And I think that's what we get. We sort of get the uh, tilted, world askew, off balance feeling. That's our action. That, that starting off on, with that sort of feeling is what we have in place of the story starting off the moment something happens. What has happened is we're completely knocked off balance by the behavior of these women. And then there's mentions of things like medication and the, the time that they've spent away from the house and the length or time or lovelessness of the father. And 
her relationship and things like that, like sort of get needles thrown at one another because of that. And we learn that there's even more unbalance going on in this house. And I think that that makes it even more compelling beyond just, you know, this kind of wicked witch kind of woman is ruling this house with an iron fist. Yes, because it seems to be like ruling the house. It seems to be more like she's trying to it's a it's a, so much about appearance. It's so much about, well, I am the mother and you're the children. I need you to fall in line and be respectful. It's all about like uh, like to have the semblance of a normal household despite the fact that uh Yunju is not their biological mother. They she still is very obsessed with a very strict family unit that at least on the surface appears to be functional. Then we find out that she was the care nurse for their terminally ill mother. And then we kind of, I, I think that that in and of itself has us kind of throw up our arms and decide she's horrible right there. We're <laughs> like, well, she's doubly evil because she stole the husband from the sick wife or whatever story you make up in your mind to fill in any blanks there. But it does, it, do, it just doesn't look good. That's bad optics from, mm -hmm. from the get-go is that I guess she would have probably taken care of the kids to a certain extent anyway. And maybe the hatred was seated there and the confusion because they're, you know, had to watch their mother die. And at first we're not really given many details about the length or the severity of that illness. All we know is that this woman who has usurped the title of mother was the nurse to their dead mother. And right there again, she's a villain. It's such a gut wrenching plot point because immediately I am just thinking oh their poor mother those two were probably canoodling while she was lying sick and dying in her bed it's this ghoulish notion that I think everyone comes face to face with at some point in their life it's that their or our inevitable end is not going to stop the world, let alone the people closest to us in our lives. Because she is not yet cold in the ground and her husband has already effectively moved on. And and it is just it's so sad and, and you I am you know you like you said you immediately side with Sue Me and and you just like if I could literally spit venom into those words that she says, like I would like, that's the vitriol that you feel. There also is clearly something else going on in this house. Do you mean because it seems to be maybe haunted or because there's bruises showing up on the younger sister's arms? Well, both as a matter of fact, uh, the, the, the bruising again um we didn't talk much about um suyo suyon excuse me uh if i'm mispronouncing her name uh, my apologies suyon is the more what do you want to say docile the quieter the the more sensitive of the sisters 
Sumi does the talking and and follows what her sister says and all of the conflict is surrounded between uh, Yunju and Sumi whereas Suyan is kind of always in the back like and and then it makes it even more sad when you think oh no is is the stepmother taking out her frustrations of Sumi on uh, Suyan because she's more docile because she could be bullied and not only is this woman a fornicator Lydia she's a bully <laughs> on top of yeah. that yeah and that's what it seems to be and it kind of reminds me of even though there wasn't as much domestic violence or supposed domestic violence going on in this other story but um, Shirley Jackson's We've Always Lived in the Castle has sort of this dynamic going on between the sisters where one is younger and more innocent, more quiet and more in her own little world and the older one takes charge speaks for them quite often of course and is also the arbiter who decides who is being who is the arbiter deciding on what sort of payback there is for what cruelty and we're expecting this to come to a head once these bruises are found Suyan has nightmares visions of their ghostly mother uh, these bruises show up as an audience member do we think at this point because I'm not 100% sure watching this film right it's do you think, oh no, this is all what, some kind of crazy misunderstanding because the house is haunted? Or do you think this is a psychosis that is, because we started in a hospital, is this a psychosis that is trying to make sense of the trauma that they're endearing, uh, enduring uh, at the hands of this woman? Or, I mean, is it just ghosts, Right. Or is it like the little sister inflicting this on her to drive a wedge between everybody and wanting her older sister and only marginally older, it seems they're about the same age, these two girls, uh, all to herself. Is that part of that? Because she had her mother taken away, so to speak. Does she not want her sister taken away? Um, the father is a kind of nowhere to be seen in any of this. So don't think that we're ignoring him. He's ignoring us. Very much the classic checked out dad character who you would forget is even in the movie unless he kind of just like wearily sits down like furrows his brow and he's just like vaguely trying to make sure people get along um but in a really kind of in my opinion manipulative like self-deprecating sort of way that parents do when they're trying to pass the buck where they just say well I, you know, I guess I'm just a bad father I know I'm a bad father so you know that's how come you hate me which is like it's dismissive it's dismissive because you know obviously it's a complicated situation you know because there's no easy way to say I kind of resent you for fucking mom's nurse while she was still alive and then she died and now she's the stepmom and she's pretty mean to us and I suspect that she's beating my sister. But of course, 
and then he just fades into the background. Nothing is really ever resolved. And that weariness uh, starts to make a whole lot sense later. Now, Yunju does have a bird. And one of the things... Yes. <laughs> does the bird die? Yes. Yeah, that is the animal cruelty portion of the show. Um, and does the bird even exist is another question, you know, that we could ask ourselves later on. But like the bird thing, everything is brought to a head quite early, actually, in the film where the stepmother loses her mind. Apparently, they've not only killed her bird, they've busted in and destroyed her personal belongings and defaced photos. If there's one uh, trope or convention of a lot of these sorts of films is defaced photos, whether they're defaced by supernatural means in the ring or defaced because someone wants to be erased from history. This is defaced photos that we also see that how how much she was really in their lives. The one thing about these photos that I wish that they could have done with the power of AI or special effects is made the girls look a little younger because they look like they were taken last week. I will point that out. That the photos, <laughs> yes, <laughs> the photos that crack this wide open, so to speak, and then prove to us that that nurse was really within their lives and their mother's life and it was really a wolf in sheep's clothing or whatever, snake in the grass, if you'd like to put another animal al analogy on there. Um, she wasn't the bird in the bush. The bird in the bush was in the cage and is now dead. And so she's so mad. She exacts revenge on the young sister by throwing her in a closet. Uh, the wardrobe, more accurately, and locking it. Now, this also ties into our suspicions that she is a child-abusing asshole. Because who like this seems to be the thing that she does. Right? We have no proof this is the first and only time she's ever locked someone in a closet. The... Uh, there's a good dance that is done here with Yunju because there's this moment and I love it it's this moment she locks the door and closes it and and and, and is about to storm off and she hesitates and that hesitation she's not facing the camera but that hesitation reads to me as if she has in her in the peak of her rage she has done this thing which seems to come quite naturally to her maybe it was done to her when she was a little girl but she has this moment where it looks as though when when she can hear the screaming coming from the closet it's like this she's come to her senses and it looks as though she might, oh my God, what have I just done? And she's going to go and open the closet. But she has this resolute moment where she's like, no, I am going to stick to my guns here. This disrespect has to stop. And this is a punishment. And I'm going through this. Again, no dialogue exchanged. All of yeah. this, yeah. all of this just through physicality, and uh, it, it's such a great scene. It's such a great scene. I want to uh, back up a little bit because we missed the first like really startling supernatural thing that I wanted to talk a little bit about because it plays in to something later. 
where the bedroom scene that I was talking about in which the the Su, uh, Suyan and Sumi are sharing a bed together. They were sleeping together. And in the morning, Sumi sees a long-haired ghost dressed in black crawl out from under the bed. And again, she's not facing you for the longest time. And it's not even entirely sure what it is as it's emerging. And then you realize, oh God, it's a woman. And then she were to step over the bed and is just standing over top of her. And it comes off as a sleep paralysis demon type scenario. And then all of a sudden we see uh, uh, menstruation blood come down the ghost's leg and then Sumi seemingly wakes up and then finds that her sister has had her period at the same time and so she chops this up to oh I had a dream in which a weird paralysis demon had its period and my sister's having her period um also she so she goes to take um some pads from their stepmother and she's also going through it at the same time which is kind of normal when women live together they do get that sort of um tribal menses kind of thing where the cycles will meet up which is which is normal but also kind of weird that they have to turn to this evil girl this evil stepmom for their very important womanly secret things right still the, have to come to her as a mother yeah so it's the only it's the only other of age woman in the house right and if anyone's going to have any of this uh kind of stuff uh she would and i i just wanted to point that out because it is like a significant plot point that does uh that does happen yeah and in that uh, bedroom as well so it seems like a, most of the supernatural occurrences happen in there where others happen in the kitchen. And they don't, to me, really explain a lot of this uh, kitchen dining room sort of uh, strangeness. But I guess that when there's a ghost in the house or a ghost in your memories, it will hide under things because <laughs> that's like uh, <laughs> where children might see it most often or where children would manifest it most often um, because there is a flashback. There's a few flashback sequences throughout this movie which could itself be one entire flashback sequence without it being a it was all a dream, thank god but mm. there's flashback sequences to when their mother was alive and detailing a little bit of the behavior uh, of her illness. It seemed to ebb and flow. Sometimes she was completely bedridden. Other times she seemed fairly okay. The old good days and bad days type scenario where it really made you think that like, as like that, the, the, even within the flashback, you were jumping around time sequences to the different progressions of the illness. Yeah. Yeah. It seemed that she was carrying on fairly well until her last day. So it wasn't like a long and prolonged, thing which maybe explains why they don't look too much younger in the photos and that this is so very recent but 
sometimes I feel like that had gone on for years and the children should have been so much younger. Um, we have this fun dinner sequence, which we alluded to earlier, where we had briefly met the uncle and aunt in a different flashback sequence and we meet them here at dinner time where they are very out of sorts they look like they don't want to be there at all this is no fun beetlejuice deo uh manifestation either (laughs) there is i could tell you what is the most uncomfortable aspect of this entire sequence to me where, and I don't know, I'd be curious. I wanted to ask you while I was watching the film, this is why I miss watching movies where you're sitting right next to me. Yeah. But Yunjo or Yunju is um, telling this long ass fucking story and she is laughing and carrying on. And the uncle is like, I, no, like, I don't remember this. I don't know what you're talking about. And the, the, the liveliness and the, the um, pace in which she's telling the story. And her husband is just like, everyone is looking at her like, she is describing just incoherent nonsense. It's like you're watching someone sundowning and you don't really know what to do. And I got the sense that I'm the youngest in my my family. Well, I was the youngest in my family for the longest time. You know, people have procreated, but... Um, for the longest time, I was the youngest. So what happens is, is people who were alive before you were know things about you that you don't remember anymore. And so many times I have been told stories about me that I just, through consensus reality, I just agree happened. Like there's several stories that that like it seemed like for a while every time my whole family got together, they would talk about oh the time that Wesley did this or the time that Wesley did that, and I've repeated those stories to other people, but I don't remember them whatsoever. And I was curious, has that ever happened to you in which people are like telling you a story about you, and you're like I have no idea what the fuck you're talking about. So somewhat. And it, uh, yes, I've definitely had the stories and even from high school, people telling me stories. And there's a very famous story within my family about me in high school that I do not fucking remember whatsoever. But I have to believe it happened, especially because there was many other witnesses and different people have told me this story. I don't remember it at all. But I've also had the the lesser degree where it's someone I knew, an aunt or uncle or something when I was younger that I don't remember ever meeting. And my mom would have these big, long stories and like, oh, you remember so-and-so. And it's like, eventually I just gave up and started being like, oh, yeah, yeah, I remember this random person you're naming because I don't, I don't, I fucking don't. I'm so sorry I don't. But I wouldn't be looking at the person telling the story quite like the aunt and uncle are looking at her at this dinner because it is like she has stepped in dog poo and is smearing it on their jackets. Like that's kind of the look that they're giving her while she is manically telling this hilarious story about 
whatever had happened, she does not like they don't remember. And it could be in a normal family being like, yeah, that's a funny story. I don't remember that at all. Maybe you're misremembering it. Oh, maybe I am. Anyway, moving on. But in this family, no, it is a cause for alarm, tension, worry, hatred, <laughs> all those things. But you know how to stop a good story like this in its tracks, Wes? Is it erupt into a violent, unprecedented seizure? Yes, it is. Yeah. How did you know? Well. Yeah, the aunt suddenly has this insane seizure. And it's not like, you know, you can seizures don't keep an appointment book. Mm-hmm. So, sure. But was there mention that she'd ever had a seizure or a disorder? that involved seizures before was this a supernatural seizure Wes it couldn't be because they had medication for it like she had it on her yeah you're right yeah you're right so this has to be something that you don't need dialogue to say oh she gets uh, seizures sometimes Uh, I used to get seizures when I was a kid and Yeah, it's one of those things where I don't remember how I behaved. That's part of a seizure. It's just your circuits uh, get scrambled there for a minute, and then you don't remember anything. Wake up on the floor. Everyone around you is hysterical, and you have no idea what is going on. Uh, You know, bless my parents. Uh, I could could imagine that that was uh, terrifying. But the... uh, In this case, it is like a seizure... I've, I've also been in presence of people who have had seizures several times throughout my life. And I've never seen one in real life or in film acted as violent. The screeching, the wailing, the that in and of itself is terrifying enough. Um, you know, you, you get the sense where, you know, maybe the aunt sort of leaned into the uncle and said, like, Hang on a second. Go go get my, uh, uh, y- you know those Tic Tacs you have in your pocket. Go, go wait and grab them. I'm gonna I'm gonna get us out of here real quick. And then just <laughs> fakes a seizure to get the fuck out of this awkward ass conversation. But they eventually struggle. They get you. You kind of see um, the father in action, and he seems like paralyzed with indecision. Like he needs to have orders barked at him in order to to get him to help him be useful. Pills break. I mean, bottles smash. It's absolute pandemonium. And then we cut to the aunt and the uncle driving away in the car. And what the aunt sees underneath that sink, that elevated sink. I would love that in my home to be able to get under there. And sweep, and like, yeah. <laughs> and sweep and stuff like that. That'd be great. But yeah. it's this this person, a kid or whatever you want to call it, underneath there looking like they're covered in like oil. Or soot or something. Yeah. Weird looking creosote covered creature child mm-hmm. underneath the sink, um, which... It doesn't necessarily make sense, except for maybe the idea of uh, ghosts in cramped areas in this house. Uh, Ghosts in dark, cramped areas, maybe. But Mm -hmm. why it manifests under there like that to her, 
I, I I chalked up the father's reaction to maybe that maybe this was reminding him or a precursor that he had witnessed to his wife's illness. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think you might be right. Honestly, I think you might be right. Um, this kitchen sequence, uh, probably the most famous sequence in the film. Everybody talks about this kitchen, the red floor with that weird, the grout is so wide on it that it looks like the floor is simultaneously very clean and very filthy at the same time. Yeah, almost like a industrial kitchen floor, an older industrial kitchen floor. It's stainless steel clean and grimy, greasy, dirty. When this house is in turmoil, dinners are ruined, we're seeing ghosts, kids are getting locked in closets. The father finally steps up, Lids. Finally, he's had enough. Dead birds, closets, enough of this. And stop, stop talking about uh, Suyon. She's dead. Your sister is dead. And like any film like this, we're like, no, she's not. She's right there. What do you mean? Are you just like that blind man? And then like you, you sort of like, OK, is has this been some sort of weird manifestation of an angry sister who had at one point somehow lost her younger sister? You half expect there to be this moment of Sumi like holding her head like, oh, well, like all these like flashbacks of scenes that we've already seen, but in the context of like, she's by herself, like it flashes to white and oh no, she was by herself the whole time and it flashes to white again. Oh no, she was talking to nobody. That doesn't happen, thankfully. No, which is great. What we do get instead is take your medication. I've had enough of this. The idea that, um, the idea that one of the sisters is dead definitely crossed my mind the very first time I watched this film. Did you suspect it all just either through the story itself or just your familiarity with stories like this? Uh, no, I didn't. And, um, and no, I, I hadn't at all, which was what I th- thought was so compelling about this film. I'm like, were there hints otherwise that, would have led me to believe the way that the parents behave around the two sisters. Like you're always looking for that with these sorts of films if you don't catch on to it right away. Or it's part of why you catch on to it right away is because the they, the the sibling will refer to the other sibling and the parents will look around the room like, What? <laughs> you mean there's another kid in this room? And yeah. So I didn't really get any of that. So I thought it was just pulled together quite impeccably. And there could be scenes that you could try and poke holes in that by being like, oh, well, the way that this person reacted at this point or the way that she is behaving at this point or, you know, those sorts of silly things, trying to poke holes in, in this theory, you could try and do it. And I think that that's what doubly confused me. Also, the flashback sort of stuff doesn't help when there definitely were two sisters. That is true. And also any. So I watched this trying to find chinks in the armor. Not because I, I want to be that person that's like, nah, ha, I watched the movie good and you fucked up. But I think that there's, since there is one more layer to this twist sandwich, Lids, 
they don't slip up once <laughs> in how they're projecting this. And even if you were to go back and and like remove that extra slice of the twist sandwich, um, I don't know why I keep changing my voice like that. Um, the it, even then it holds together when it's now the next day. Sumi is not convinced that this is true. There's something going on, and she might be right because her stepmother is dragging a bloody sack child sized sack through the house and you start thinking as the audience are they are they fucking with her to cover up a murder is are they just gaslighting sumi into thinking you never your sister just died years ago what are you talking about she wasn't just brutally murdered here and Sumi is going to prove that her sister is in that sack. Yeah, the sack is still like vaguely moving and stuff. It is a horrible, horrible scene to be, you know, in the shoes of this young girl who wakes up and peers out after a horribly unsettling family life has come to a head and to see what we see, which you know, you, you want to believe your own eyes. You're seeing the stepmother dragging a child-sized bloody bag down the hall in the fading moonlight, which adds a whole other level of creepiness to this scene. This turns into a violent fight. A fight with, it's like, you know, almost two hours in the making. We've been wanting to see these two. No more words your stepmother is a murderer it's time to take her out as best she can yeah and it's the power of a of a very angry uh newly pubescent girl young teen girl uh exacted on this middle-aged woman who kind of maybe doesn't want to beat on her quite as violently as you're suspecting she beat on the little girl that's in the bag and then it turns into uh, to me beating on the bag and it's just a bloody fucking mess until the father comes and breaks up this fight. It's like a, a fight club moment though. Isn't it? Want yeah. you to hit me as hard as you can. <laughs> Punch my ear. Um, well, the father has broken this wall, so to speak, once already with your sister is dead. Just take your medication. I'm done with you. And again, we have him being like, no, it, there's no one else in this house but me and you. Take your medication. <laughs> and I think that, that, again, the scales fall from our eyes, which we had clung on to almost as violently as Sumi had clung on to the idea that her sister was still alive. We clung on to it. Now, we're the ones infected with a disassociative identity disorder in believing that people who are dead or don't exist are there or embodying themselves. Now what is in the bag is not a broken bloodied sister. Just a doll. And it wasn't being dragged through the hallways by the stepmother either. No. Just a broken doll. That has been beaten and I, I don't know if there's any sort of trace of real blood whatsoever and if there's any that it's Sumi as herself because she's the one that's been acting as the stepmother, acting as the sister, 
And it explains the awkwardness of that family dinner in a new light, doesn't it? It certainly does, because let's all have dinner with my severely manic and mentally ill daughter who's suffering from, uh, what do you call it, dissociative identity disorder? or And of course the uncle has no idea what this story is, because Sumi would have no knowledge of their childhood together, and so she was making it up just straight up telling a fake story at a very, you know, elevated and and frantic manner. And it must have been fairly uncomfortable, disturbing, however you want to look at it. Now, there's an aspect of this film that would have you question, Liz, perhaps rightly so. It would have you question, okay, so Sumi is not well. And some bad stuff happened. And Yunju does exist, but she appears to be a softer, kinder uh, person who's willing to visit her in the hospital. Sumi is very much uh, in a more lucid state these days, coming to grips with the reality, actually talking to the, the person in which she had so hated in her mind that she had created a, a, an evil stepmother persona uh, for her that she could act out and validate all of her harsh feelings. But I guess it's all in the poor girl's head, Lids. And I guess these ghosts were part of it, part of that strange hallucination. No. Also, the house is haunted. <laughs> Also, the house is haunted and the sister didn't die by her hand because just because somebody has dissociative identity disorder or a multiple personality disorder, it may be more commonly known as when it was known as that, I think prior to the DSM-4, it was called MPD, uh, doesn't make them a violent criminal. <laughs> no. By any means. Yeah. Uh, the sister was indeed trapped in the closet. At one point. And that hesitation that you noted when she first, the stepmother, had first put her in the closet is witnessed it again in the hallway. Because there's a screaming, crying child in a closet. She hesitates, like, have I done the right thing? No, she killed my bird. She's taken the animal's life. I've done the right thing by tra trapping her in a closet. I'm going to walk away from this. She's in the hallway and has that same sort of hesitation again. Like, I'm going to turn around and I'm going to let her out and it's going to be fine. Like, I'm going to apologize and do motherly things or whatever it is to work through this. But the sister, Sumi, has some shitty words to say to her in the hallway. So she decides, you know what? No. I'm going to leave her in there and let her cry it out. Which is, a, and again, a pretty motherly reaction, if you ask me. There's one critical aspect that you have uh, glossed over, Liz. I did. Uh, a critical aspect. <laughs> so, Which makes the stepmother maybe more cruel? Uh, yeah, maybe more cruel, more unhinged, and this is... Listen. Gang, it's me. It's Wes. Your podcasting hero. I love this film. I think it's beautifully written. 
I don't get this aspect of it whatsoever. I'm hoping Lydia, you can bring me to, you can, you can show me the light because we have Yunju as the interloper, the, the uh, nurse who fell for uh, her charge's husband and had an affair. The mother, the biological mother, has either discovered this and in grief or perhaps in grief of her own illness or perhaps something we don't know, has hung herself in the closet. Su Yan is the one that discovers her mother's body. And in fright, uh, uh, hysterics, she backs away, gets caught, and her mother's body falls on her as well as the closet, smothering the girl. Yunju hears this from the kitchen and comes upstairs and wa and just watches the girl struggle under that body and the closet scratching at the wood and does nothing. And then when Sumi shows up and says those shitty things before she was like, did you hear anything? Do, do you hear that? It's almost as if saying like, okay, go save your sister. Did I, I think I heard something and I need to explain why I've been standing here so long, not helping. But Sumi doesn't hear anything. She is too blinded by her disgust and rage towards this woman that she knows is having an affair with her father. She doesn't know that her mother has killed herself. She doesn't know that her sister is struggling for life, not five feet in the other direction. Why? Why is Yunju not helping? I don't get it. There's no, there's no precedent to who like, yeah, yeah. The one that never talks and seems kind of flippant to my existence. I'm going to watch her die. I don't get it. <laughs> I don't, I don't understand. I don't get it either. And on one hand, I want to be like, you know what? We're being told the story yet again by the most unreliable narrators of all unreliable narrators. Like we don't have any proof at this point that this actually happened this way because we've already been shown a version of this particular happenstance in the meeting in the hallway that was false anyway. The one that I just iterated, like it was that like all these memories are false. Is this really how it happened? Yeah, probably. And okay. On the other hand, is it that the actions of these daughters can so fill this woman with hatred and she's had no way to express it because she's not a child abuser at all. And this is the one thing that she did beyond child abuse. But the one thing that she did that she it was all that she could do to get back at these kids. I don't, I don't really know. It's flimsy. It's flimsy at best. Now, maybe they're stuck i listen i have never read the original folk tale that this is based off of maybe we're losing something in translation maybe we were losing something and not understanding the history behind the story maybe they're stuck to the confines in the same way that like when war of the worlds got remade and then everyone was like what fucking bacteria killed these aliens that's stupid and i'm like that's the story 
like you don't have to like it, but that is the story, and you can't be mad at the movie for following the story. Um, is it that where we're just supposed to understand that, like, well, she is an evil woman because she did these things, and her comeuppance is going to be this evil spirit, or perhaps evil is the wrong word. Um, this would be in Korea, Kishin. They are like the Japanese Onryu, the, the very aggressive, malevolent spirits. But the thing that the movies tend to get wrong, with some exceptions, uh, our most famous Onryu indiscriminately attack people. Sadako and uh, Kayako and, and all of them. Kishin and Onryu typically only enact revenge on the people that wronged them in life. Their curse manifests only for revenge. Someone weak and frail in life becomes powerful in death and is able to do what their living self could not accomplish. That is the point of the Kishin lore. So in that sense, Yunju making an, uh, uh, a decision of neglect. Well, this solves the problem. I want... If she had expressed any sort of love or passion for this man, I would I would understand and buy that she fell in love with him and she knew that with the wife alive, he couldn't really she couldn't really have him as her own, and the kids hate her. So wouldn't it just be convenient if everyone died? You could tell me that story if you didn't also complicate it with this chilly, sexless, resentful relationship that we don't really even get to experience because Yunju, we don't ever meet the real one. Like we 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 meet the daughter manifesting as her, and we meet a version of her that eventually is just c killed. And so I just, I don't get what the motivation is for letting this child die slowly over the course of minutes being smothered by her mother's own body. It's incredibly dark and ghoulish. I love it. It's a beautiful and, and uh, startling conclusion to this film, but I just don't get it. I just don't. I guess only in that she figured the closer we get to zero again with just me and this man, we can start over and have more children of my own that aren't these ones that are in the way. Whether I mm -hmm. like them or not, or their deaths are ghoulish or not. I mean, I've read not this, what this folktale is based on, but versions of it where there's one dead sibling in a wardrobe uh, and no one just ever opened the wardrobe again. And he haunted them, and that was it. No one ever looked at it again. That's fine. No one really knew whatever happened to him, but they sort of side-eyed the living sibling to the end of their days. <laughs> you know, that sort of, would you rather that sort of resolution where, you know, wh whether or not we know who put the kid in the in the closet and the, or whether, whether or not we know why the kid went into the closet it just like two people disappeared in this house and were never found again would be the other way we would have had an ending to this, I suppose, or the ghost did it. We can't, we can't do that. Cause there's not a ghost yet. Now there's two of them. 
one that likes to hide underneath little cramped spaces, which explains the manifestation in a way in the kitchen, not entirely to me, but it is an underneath cramped little place in the dark. It doesn't really explain that oily substance or anything like that to me, except for maybe the decomposition corpse soap and stuff like that, perhaps. But her mom wasn't that long dead that she would have decomposed on top of her by any means. And that's ghoulish. So we're getting into different levels of ghoulish now. But I, I don't know what the motivation or explanation would have been. Why the father has anything to do with that woman afterward. If he had put in two and two together, I don't know if he just spent all of this time in his office until the funeral and then went back into his office after the funeral. Like, I don't really know uh, why he has her in their life unless she is Sumi's nurse and kind of always has been. We won't know that, though, because of the nature of this narrator and who's telling us a story. Yeah. I mean... It, it doesn't ruin anything for me in terms of the film. I just felt myself really lost. And I think maybe if, if I were uh, Korean uh, or was more familiar with this story, I would be like, oh, of course, I absolutely get those. At the end of the day, it's almost as if there was just yet one more twist was that Sumi's reality broke not once, not twice, but then she then tries to be fed another false reality by Yunju, and then she says, No, actually, now that I'm on my meds, I know exactly, I remember exactly what happened, and this is what happened. And then also, there's a ghost. So all of these things were happening simultaneously. Not only are you dealing with a, a very sick, young girl who is um you know not herself and envisioning herself as different people you have you have a, a haunting on top of it so it's like the last twist was oh there actually was a ghost and yunju is murdered presumably i mean I, I think that's what we're meant to believe that she was killed by that ghost right yeah that's what i've figure as well she was more lured in there than in there intentionally committing suicide mm -hmm. and that's what ghosts tend to do is lure and loom and this ghost uh, has done sort of both of those things whether it's looming in the kitchen or not it was looming at night over the bed it's just funny to think about the things that the things that Sumi could have been hallucinating about were not the things that she was hallucinating about the things that seemed normal were the things that she was hallucinating and the things that seemed outrageous like seeing ghosts that's the thing that was actually happening which is the best twist of all and i think that that is why this has such enduring quality like not only because it's based on a folktale that is very different and that has uh been retold in many different ways and I've read stories that are vaguely based on this and ones of like 
girls wanting one another's pairs of shoes and pretending to be the other and the other is hanged but it's actually she was lured into her death and like those sorts of twisty twisty tales and that there is a ghost in those as well that's the only true part like that's actually a, a trope i suppose or convention of a lot of these asian folk tales and ghost stories uh, especially when they start becoming translated and retranslated and retranslated and modernized and having the uh, mental illness factor in i can see that being really aggravating to a lot of people and a lot of the time when they're trying to blame uh supernatural stuff on someone's mental illness it, it rubs me absolutely the wrong way and like it should for a lot of people and i think that this helps in that uh, the, uh, her mental illness was manifesting in many different ways but the ghost was not one of them mm-hmm. and and uh also the thing that i do like about the representation of the mental illness was like a lot of people they're mostly just dangerous to themselves they have the yeah. like the she's not out to hurt anybody she's just living in her head and all of these scenarios of her like being quite calm and sitting there and listening and all that kind of stuff you could imagine that for a lot of it she was just sitting there just imagining these scenarios and imagining all these harsh and violent things happening and you know it would almost be like she was sleepwalking just like dragging that bag out there and just busting a doll and then you know I, I, I do like that it doesn't oh and of course she's violent on top of all of that because she's not violent no not really and her father um, you know I think that his perceived standoffishness is just that kind of exhaustion you get for being the primary caretaker for anyone in any medical situation uh, coupled with the idea that you had pointed out when the mother was dying that it, it's tough but a reality that other people's lives go on around you whether that means that your husband bangs someone else or whatever like uh, other people's lives do go on around you uh, a lot of the time so that your life can go on and it may seem like they're uncaring or hustling and bustling or ignoring you but they're actually just you know everyone's got to get fed and the bill's got to get paid and maybe that's part of what his perceived standoffishness is that he brings her to the summer house and works in his office because that's what he does it's not a vacation for him it was a little fresh air and doing what he can considering he's now a single dad for the most part uh, with a very severely mentally ill daughter that he needs to keep safe yeah, and there was that one point in which he was happily married and had two kids, and then, you know, he was left on his own and he was just doing the best that he could and, you know, m like, maybe made some bad decisions, but at the end of the day, very human decisions. Like, uh, like uh, he, did, he couldn't have known that this would lead to one of his daughters getting killed and then another one of their daughters like having a mental breakdown and, and, and stuff like that like uh, he, he couldn't have known but that still being said like, like it does alleviate my frustration like but when you're first watching this movie and he's just like wandering in and out of scenes like the real ghost in the film you're just like what is your purpose dude but um, yeah I think that one of the things that this film is going to um, 
this film is just timeless. It's a timeless story. It's not something that can get bogged down in uh, a lot of like modern plot devices. It's just, and I think that's how come like people still bring it up to this day. 2003, it's not a film that a lot of people discuss outside of fans of Asian horror, Korean horror films. You know, nowadays people might, you know, talk about Train to Busan or they might talk about The Wailing or they might talk about uh, Hashtag Alive. Like, like uh, you know, the stuff coming out of Korea is always just at another level. Uh, Goji Ram Asylum, a film that I absolutely love, kind of redis- rediscovered how much I loved her recently. In the same breath of, like, when you're talking about Korean horror specifically, it is always top of mind for people like where people like who really respect the genre are like oh a tale of two sisters is one of the most legendary korean horror films ever made with the most legendarily uh heinous atrocious and unrelated remake in 2009 called the uninvited which no one talks about ever again anymore, except until to the, this day. And then you can delete this portion of the podcast and burn it in a fire because that is what that movie deserves. Uh, as far as I recall, because I did watch it once, thinking, you know, oh, cool, a remake of A Tale of Two Sisters that is uh, Americanized, like a little more modernized because 2003 isn't that long ago. Uh, so 2009, I watched it. I hated it. I was... You know, at least I got through the movie, though, unlike Carrie uh, or Martyrs, another two good two remakes of really wonderful films that I just couldn't even abide. So I never finished watching either of those. They were so atrocious. The Uninvited at least was a watchable sort of like almost Hallmark movie in a way, but not good. I think that uh, (laughs) every time I see the poster for The Uninvited, I always think about how much you fucking hate that movie. Um, I I will say for the remake, I didn't realize that it was supposed to be a remake when I first saw it. Uh, it didn't really hold my attention. It's quite generic. The story is quite different. So, you know, be prepared for that. If you're thinking about... This was an, an era in which a lot of things was getting remade. And I think that recently, thanks to films like Parasite, like Train to Busan, um, Hollywood uh, was starting to get the message that people will watch films with subtitles if they don't speak the language. It's okay. You don't have to be scared of it. You don't have to put a bunch of white actors and badly retell the same script. Netflix had a lot of success with Squid Game. Nobody cared that that was... Uh, uh, Korean and I, I think that they've slowly started to learn their lesson a little bit and I think it's allowed a lot more exposure to Korean horror over the years uh, to a western audience which is, I th- which is I think is lovely really truly lovely because you know a lot of a lot of the thought process behind these remakes was down to brass tacks western audiences will not watch films unless they have western actors in them they don't want to read subtitles they want to see movies in english and this how a, a, a ye of little faith as they say 
because I think nowadays you can see that. And the nice thing is, is that people are just getting on board, just getting on board with Korean horror. And because of Squid Game, because of Parasite, because of Train to Busan and The Wailing and all the other films that I mentioned, um, you've got a treasure trove of films like A Tale of Two Sisters, of Whispering Corridors, and a million others that we haven't mentioned that are just waiting for you. And hopefully this will be high, high, high on that list. I mean, look at the cover of this. This would be compelling. If someone's looking through, you know what, Korean horror, I'm interested. Show me 10, 20, 50 Korean horror uh, covers and one sheets. This one will stand out. And there's a reason. It's gorgeous from tip to tail. Unlike its remake, unlike so many other remakes that break the the feeling, the mood, the pacing, all those things. Yeah. Uh, really, really glad that we got to talk about this one. And Whispering Corridors, which was new for me. You know, two really, really fantastic movies. And you had mentioned um, the Haunted Asylum film, which we mm -hmm. are going to be covering in a movie or two, because whether we get it out for Halloween or not, we're going to be doing some Halloween-y stuff and then back into some Asian cinema that is somewhat related. Yeah, we're going to be doing, um, what was it? It's Hell, Hell House LLC, right? Yes. What do we got? We're doing this all wrong. What do we got next for him, Lydia? Next, we have Hell House LLC, which I always want to just chop off the LLC part because that is just such a U.S. thing. But yeah, Hell House, found footage, haunt gone awry. Much like haunt the film that we talked about previously that is now a yearly annual halloween staple uh which was not found footage but just terrifying a really terrifying film this one is equally terrifying because they do a lot of the things in the found footage genre so right and we get to go in the behind the scenes of a halloween haunt attraction which i don't know i don't see enough halloween haunt attractions i like to see the behind the scenes of them this is really cool yeah, I'm excited. Um, and just talking about like availability recently, like Shutter dropped every one of these movies onto their yeah. streaming service, which is more than I could say for Finding a Tale of Two Sisters. It's it's not. I mean, we found it on YouTube for free, but like the, you know, it's it's kind of challenging, especially if you're a physical media collector. Tale of Two Sisters is always one that I'm keeping my feelers out for because uh, it it doesn't pop up too often. I had a DVD of it and I don't know what the hell I did with it. I don't know why I would have got rid of it. I have no idea. Maybe I had planned to buy it in a different version or I thought I even had a digital copy bought, which would maybe explain why I got rid of a physical version of this, but I, I can't explain it to myself whatsoever. And I feel foolish for not having it. But uh, yeah, we also do have all the Hell House movies because Chris is a fan of that franchise. So I'm very happy. It had the same sort of feel for me in some points like Grave Encounters, which is my most favorite found footage film of all time. And Lydia, I'm sorry to have to tell you this on the podcast. Um, I just need you to stop all this foolishness. Your copy of A Tale of Two Sisters is dead. <laughs> no, it's not. No, it's not. No, it's not. And I'm not going to take my meds. 
<laughs> and on that note, I'm Wes Knight. And I'm Typical Lydia. And you've been listening to Dead Air, probably. If you like this show, you can find more episodes and other content on splatterpictures.net, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you download your podcasts. You can also find us on TikTok, Twitter, and Instagram. The show is edited by Lydia Peaver and hosted by Lydia Peaver and me, Wes Knipe. We'll see you next time.